Welcome to an Illenials bonus episode. I'm Smith. I'm Seth. And we call them Illenials at night. At night? This yeah. is what this is the Illenials at night. Hey, when we, when we do our Stormlight book uh, book reviews, can we call ourselves Illenials Nights, but like with a K? So Nights Radiant. Nights Radiant. We'll yeah. workshop it. It might be something a little, little, little better. Nights Illenials. We're getting there. I think there's yeah. a better better nugget in there um but yeah the millennials at night the reason i call it that is because it's like you're it's like you're a fly on the wall for a regular conversation between the two of us mm-hmm. that we would have particularly at nighttime yeah and that's why we decided to do the, this episode this is the episode these episodes where we get we get real we get raw yeah. we don't we don't censor ourselves we do a regular podcast exactly and this is the episode that honestly if you listen to it or not we don't mind because we're just right, doing yeah. this is this is honestly for us mm-hmm. definitely so the title of the podcast probably tip folks off what we're doing here but we are going to be talking about the mistborn trilogy by brandon sanderson brando sando the mando um yep. commando so a little background for folks about three or four years ago I was trying to get back into books because uh, I was a big I was a book nerd all through uh, well until I got out of college life, basically. basically. And I stopped reading once I got started working uh, full time, anyways. And so someone recommended me uh, Mistborn, or what is apparently called Mistborn: The Final Empire, uh, yeah. as its true title. Like Star Wars, yes, I retitled it later on. Yeah. Um, so I read it and I really liked it. And so I read Will of Ascension and then I started reading Hero of Ages and I fell off because I think I was having a rough time at work and I just kind of like couldn't deal with, you know, the active entertainment of reading a book. But at some point in there, I passed along my recommendation to you and yeah. it took you three or four years to yeah. follow up on it. So he took, he gave me the recommendation. He even, he even, you know, offered to let me borrow the book. And I was like, ah, I'll just I'll get it myself. I'll get it on Kindle or something. Um, and then I took time. I ruminated on the suggestion. I went. I got outside opinions. I wanted to make sure that what I was reading was going to be worth my time. And then three years. We actually, let's just say it. Three years to the day, for all we know. We don't remember when you recommended this. Three years to the day I started reading Final Empire and within three or four days, I had finished it, which is crazy for me. Yeah. Because, fun fact for the listeners, up until July of this year, I've read tons of books in my life, but up until July of this year, I had never read a book that was more than 600 pages. And now in the past month, I've read five books that are 600 plus, and two of which, well, that I'm, I'm 700 pages into one of them, but two of them are well over 1,000 pages. So I am... I'm on a big reading kick right now. Seth, if you don't mind me saying, I've only ever seen you read three books before. That was Catcher in the Rye, yep. Dune, and Zodiac. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Those those are three hitters for me. Uh-huh. Although you you are missing one book that you that I read while I was right next to you for like three days. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. A classic. A classic. Yeah. Which that was kind of... Book was, I mean, I read the whole five books together which was more than 600 pages but obviously they were five individual books so it didn't count but yeah right. i have read those books um i've okay, read, read quite a few books a lot of the books i read throughout high school and stuff were bad 
Um, I realized right around college that I actually had taste because I read Ready Player One and I gave up 80 pages in. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is what bad writing is. Because <laughs> I have a problem where, especially with books, since I'm such a slow reader, I have to like really know that the book is going to be good before I read it. Mm-hmm. And Ready Player One had a lot of suggestions, and that book sucks shit. Um, and I, this is when I was like, okay, I finally understand what a bad book is. Like, cause at that point I've been reading hitters my whole life. I just been reading really good books. Um, and that one was terrible. So that's when I realized that I could discern the difference between a good and a bad book. I think that I first realized that books could be bad when I read the sword of truth, uh, by Terry Goodkind. Uh, which is a, 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 a wait, is it Terry Goodkind or is it Terry Brooks? I believe why it's are, Terry Goodkind. Why are there two separate? There are three Terrys, isn't there? I'm googling it right now. It's it Goodkind. Goodkind. Yes, I was right. Terry Goodkind, Sword of Truth, very bad book, and yeah. I also you know that Terry Goodkind is a piece of shit. Didn't he, like, blast one of the cover artists for his books at one point Yeah, he wrote a book, and he was just like, oh, this book cover is so hilariously bad, I'm going to do a giveaway, and let's just all laugh at it. And then the guy who did the cover was like, he commented, he's like, I did everything the publisher asked me to do, I'm not sure why you're doing this right now. And then Terry Good kind of tried to come back and be like, oh, hey, I've never met you, Um, I'm sure you're just some guy from the publishing house, but, you know, I just think this is bad or whatever. He tried to, like, make it look like he was the good guy. (laughs) Jesus. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) So, yeah. Good God. All of that is besides the point. Right. This is just us telling you that we are basically book geniuses. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we have both read Dune, so we are are book geniuses, basically. Exactly. If you can read Dune, you're pretty much... You're very smart. You're very, very smart. So, uh, Brandon Sanderson in the Mistborn series... Not his first book, uh, but his first trilogy, I believe. His, his first, first series. His first series he wrote. Um, and so, Seth, I, before we started this podcast or this episode, course. I wrote up some descriptions of the books real quick. Sure. Do you want to just talk about them in sequence, or do you want to go through all three and then talk about them together? I think we'll go one by one. Okay. And then we'll Where do kind you? of a big amalgamation at the end of everything. Now, do you want to take the synopsis for The Final Empire? Sure. So... As we mentioned, the first book in the series is called The Final Empire. Some people just call the first book Mistborn, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, a description written up by my co-host, Smith. And uh, it's pretty baller. Here it is. Okay. On the ash-ridden, mist-cloaked world of Skadrial, the Final Empire, overseen by the immortal and invincible Lord Ruler, holds the world in an iron grip. A peasant thief girl named Vin is brought under the wing of legendary criminal-turned-revolutionary Kelsier as he attempts to bring down the regime. Vin learns that she is a Mistborn, a powerful individual with the ability to consume and burn metal to achieve various effects. Kelsier, also a Mistborn, teaches her to use these powers together and use these powers, and together they plan a heist slash uprising with a motley crew of metal-burning criminals. As they approach their goal, the plan faces severe challenges, and Kelsier is killed by the Lord Ruler. Vin and crew soon learn this was all part of his plan. His legend inspiring a peasant uprising that ends with Vin herself confronting and killing the Lord Ruler, using power she doesn't quite understand. The world is freed, but the dying tyrant issues a prophetic final warning. Wow. Very, very well said. Um, 
so yeah, that is kind of the setup. And also, I guess we should have <laughs> we, we should have pointed out this is a spoiler episode. This is for people who've most uh, likely yeah. read the books, or people who just don't give a shit about spoilers for uh, mm-hmm. books they may one day read. Um, but yeah, so that's the setup, and. Yeah. So one of the most important parts about the books that we should address, first of all, is the hard magic system. Right. Sanderson um, is very much known for his hard magic systems. He's even written some very good posts about why he thinks hard magic is good and the the rules he follows, um, which actually end up being just good rules for storytelling in general. Um, I just want to cut in. He he says that hard magic works for stories he wants to tell. He has no problem with soft magic. That's true. And he says it can tell very good stories, but he prefers to do hard magic. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And so whenever in the description it says people are burning metals, and this is the part that when you first described the book to me, I could not wrap my head around. It is that they actually consume these metals, normally in like flakes that are inside of like a vial. It's like an alcohol solution. Um, And they feel a reserve of metal in their body and they just start burning it mm-hmm. and it does cool stuff most people who have this power are mistings they can use one of the eight eight quote in quotes metals but a mistborn like vin and kelsier can use all of them and just for an example of, of, a, of a power here the like there's the coin shot who can burn uh, steel and can they can push basically on metal to fling it away from their center of gravity. But important point is that they can only move it directly away from themselves, and it uses their weight as the calculus of, of how fast it will fly away from them. So a coin will fly very far away very fast, because you're much heavier than a coin, but pushing on, say, an iron cage would probably push you back, because you're so much lighter than it yeah. is. That's kind of where the hard magic comes in, is there's Mm -hmm. consequences for every action, um, and sometimes it can even start feeling like math, you know? You're like, oh, this guy weighs this much, and I have to push this hard to do this. Um, And it uses, and also it uses, it doesn't just use the weight of the object, it uses whatever, like if you push a coin against the earth, Mm -hmm. it now weighs as much as the earth, technically, so then obviously you push way up because it's much heavier. It makes total sense when you think about it. Like if, you, if you're using your hand to push on a coin, if you hit the earth with it, you would be pushing against all of that weight and it would not go any further. So what would happen is you'd face resistance. But in this case, there is no like, there's no physical thing pressing back against the person, so it flings them into the air, uh, which is how they get around the people who have this coin shot power and the Mistborn who have all the powers. Yeah. So and it's very fun to see Vin, by the way, when she's learning how to use the powers and learning about how weight works, uh, because she's so light that she can't do a lot of things Kelsier can do with, with this, uh, this, these powers. Yeah, but then also, and I guess this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but in the later books, they start to realize that Vin's weight is like a huge advantage because, and they, they don't, oh, they don't say this clearly because it wouldn't make sense, but they almost kind of describe the way she uses the powers to be kind of like Ant-Man. And that she has a lower density, but she, but because of that, whenever she pr- propels a punch forward or something, she can actually punch harder than a big person, which I thought was a really cool way to tie that system in. Yeah. That's the thing about these systems. They evolve throughout the, the three main books, and then, a, you know, there's more books in the series that it continues to evolve in. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so the cool thing about the book, I think, and this is something that, you know, we both kind of listen to Sanderson talk about this, is... At the very core of it, even though there's all these cool magic systems and, you know, likable characters and interesting setting, it's a heist. Yeah. And who doesn't love a heist? 
A fantasy themed heist is a really cool idea, especially when your criminals all have different magic powers they can use. Um, it's a great recipe for for excitement and yeah. for drama. It's like a kind of like the setup for like when you play a tabletop game with your friends. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to be the mage, you'll be the warrior, you'll be the bard. It's like, hey, we got to use our strengths together and make this thing happen. And yeah. it's 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 a really cool setup, especially for um, a lot of the things I like about the Mistborn trilogy is the the characters. And the high setup really gets you to know the characters better and like what they're good at. And the whole first book kind of just serves as serves that purpose of like, here's everyone's deal and let's just run with it. And I love that. Yeah. And I should say that, uh, I do really enjoy the, the social structure that is set up in the books between the ska Mm -hmm. and the nobility. Yeah. So ska ska are are slaves. Peasant well, slaves, yeah. basically. They have no freedom, basically. Except for, just like in real life, there's a there's a kind of a weird upper class to the the ska who have craftsman abilities that can they, they can they can, like, there's one guy who is a carpenter and has yeah, made himself clubs. enough of a reputation, yeah, to live independently and, and have sort of his own uh, setup. Um, just like in real life with peasants and serfs and whatnot. And so the social structure of the of the of the world we find out later on is it was devised by the Lord Ruler because he needed a way to support the world he had act, fucked up. <laughs> Should we talk about this? Should we talk about a little bit about yeah? What I said what well of ascension because that's what comes up. But the, the okay. Lord Ruler will just say is a god emperor in the truest sense of the word. Yeah. So and that's one of the interesting things is because the world the the, wor- the number you see a hundred times in these books is a thousand years. Mm. The Lord Ruler has ruled for a thousand years. Um, he is, for all intents and purposes, immortal. He's been you know he's been there the whole time. Um, and there's even and there's uh, there's all these like rumors about him. People are like, oh, they they apparently they there's this rumor that he has the blood of God like literally in him. Like he has he's been spliced with God a little bit. Um, this sliver and then, of infinity. Exactly, and he is God for all. I mean, he's the religious leader of a lot of the, of um, the churches and stuff, and he has his own, you know, ministries. The Steel Ministry, and um, what's the obligatorious thing called? I can't remember. They have their own name too. Yeah. But there's the obligatorious, which are basically guys who, in my head, all look like Ian McDermott, and they just wear cloaks and they know things. They have and tattoos they, on, their, on their eyes. Which yeah, they got these. Eye tattoos, and they keep track of everything. If anybody, mm. if any noble person does something, they have to like make sure an obligatory knows about it. And then there's yeah. the Steel Inquisitors, which are fucking insane <laughs> because they're just like seven foot tall, or not? They're not that tall. In my in my head, my vision of every Steel Inquisitor, they're seven foot tall. They're jacked as shit, and the most important thing is they have metal spikes through their eyes and through a lot of their body. Yeah. And okay, they are so if you, crazy. okay. They're not a ministry. It's the it's the cantons. The cantons, There's, yes. The only special one is the canton of Inqu- Inquisition, which is the steel the steel inquisitors. Everybody else is part yeah. of like orthodoxy or resource or whatever. So. Yeah. Um. So that, yeah, they kind of split that up, and then they do a similar structure to the religious figures in the Stormlight Archive, also by Brandon Sanderson. I just realized mm-hmm. that. Um. That's a side note, but so that's how it's set up. Basically, and these are basically his disciples. The the Obligators are good at you know gathering information and keeping tabs on everyone, and they're very and running good with, the, running the empire. Yeah, basically. they're all they're very logistical. They they make everything happen throughout the whole empire. And the inquisitors 
are exactly what you expect they are. They are the muscle. And one very one thing you learn very quickly about the Inquisitors is that no one's ever really killed one. No. They are even Kelsier, the cool, badass, suave Mistborn, does not even know how to kill one. He's like, I haven't figured it out yet. I, every time I fight one, I just have to distract them and run away. You know what else we talk about real quick is the characters in this book because the characters yes. really is the central the central part of it. Yeah, Vin and Kelsier, um, the two main characters I would say of the, of the first book, anyways. Uh, like I said, like like you said, Vin is a ska. She's a thief. She's lived her entire life as an urchin on the streets. With her brother Reen who is not present in the book, but left her yeah. beforehand. And eventually she gets picked up by Kelsier, who is uh, a, a gentleman thief almost, turned into a, a Mistborn, um, after he was betrayed several years in the past, and went yep. and sent to the, the pits of Hothson, which are like the the, the, the spice mines of Kessel for, for, for uh, the Mistborn world. Yeah, yeah. And he survived. He's the only person who ever survived that place, apparently. And so Kelsier is this sort of mysterious father figure to Vin, uh, who's very likable, very very likable character. He, he he excels at making you enjoy when he's on when he's yeah. on the page. Yeah, one of the things they do very. He's kind of like if you ever seen the episode of Rick and Morty where Rick has to go to all these random people and ask them to do this stupid mission, and they're all like, "You son of a bitch, I'm in." That's <laughs> yeah. Kelsier. There's mm-hmm. there are several times in the first book where people are like, "I don't think this person's going to join us," and Kelsier's like, "Don't worry, they're coming back," and they always come back. Yeah. Because that's just who Kelsier is. He's um, charismatic, um, very easy to believe in, and you know he's a man of his word. He keeps that. He he keeps to the things he says, and he really does try to look out for the best in people. And the whole the thing about the book is that his plan is: I want to take down the final empire, and everyone mm-hmm. else is like, "Yeah, we'll help. We'll probably get some money out of it." Blah 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 blah. He's not actually gonna take it down, but the entire time he is like, "No, that is that's my plan. I'm. I we can do this." And it's an interesting structure that uh, I just watched a Brandon Sanderson lecture where he talked about this. Is like because when I first started reading the book, because I didn't know anything about the series. I really thought that taking out the final empire was going to be book three. I thought that was going to be a thing, but no, this book is like, guess what? That's book one motherfucker at end of book one. We take it down. Can you even imagine what happens next? And I was like, okay, I'm in. That was an incredibly smart idea. Yeah. I I'll say that the, he does not fuck around. Like the, the books, they move and big things happen between the books. Yeah. And like you said, the end of Mistborn or the Final Empire, they take down the Final Empire. They they kill the Lord Ruler. Uh, Vin is somehow able to... Okay, we should say, people don't know, the world has mist covering it at night. It is this yeah. sort of thing that reacts to... that We should have never even said that it's called allomancy, the, the powers they can use. It reacts to allomancers, and at one point when Vin is about to die, the Lord Ruler has her literally pinned against a wall, about to kill her. She manages to call upon the mist somehow and burn them like metal and overpower him with that. And it's a big moment of, of the book when you think you know everything. This is a common thing that happens in Sanderson's books is you think you know everything and he pulls the curtain back a little bit more. And if you, you see a new thing that you didn't yeah. know about. Yeah. And that uh, one's not followed up on until book three, but it's still a pretty it's good true. moment. That's, that is probably the longest running, like, how did this happen? And then when it pays off. I have it written down for favorite scenes. We'll talk about it later, but it pays yeah. off so big. Um, and the one thing we should mention, because this is also a constant in the books and through all of his books, really, is that um, 
Sanderson writes very good action scenes. Um, As much as I love reading, and I do think there are good action scenes in other books, none of them feel as tactile as what I've read from Sanderson. It really, it really feels like he has a knack for. I mean, he's done hand-to-hand combat, you know, sword combat, magical combat, and it just it flows and it's very cinematic. Mm -hmm. Um. So that's something that is going to be a constant throughout, and we're going to talk about some scenes later. But it is very something that right out of the gate impresses you because relatively early on in the first in Final Empire, there's a scene where Kelsier has to go try and rob one of the noble houses, and that is that was when I officially got hooked because the, the just the descriptions of this crazy fight scene that you know he where he steals this atium, which is the crazy um, the crazy metal in the in the story. Um, was just so good, and I'd really I sat there and I was like, I just don't think I've read action like this before, and I, he's he's really kept it up throughout all his books. What's really interesting to me is that Sanderson teases you with this because in the prologue, Kelsier kills a bunch of guys, but you don't see it. It happens nope. off screen, and they just find the aftermath. But then, and you're like, wait a minute, what can this guy do? What kind of powers does he have to to pull this all off? Because I didn't know when I first read the book, I was like, what the fuck can this guy do? And then later on, you see that action scene, you learn what he can do, and it, it feels so much better because you now have you understand what happened to those guys at the beginning, and it's yeah. it's it's a really good way to do it. And I love the way they talk about Mistborns because you know because like, they can control all the elements. They are generally stronger than most you know soldiers. They can pretty much win win any fight uh, they have to go to. Um, and it's funny the way they talk about them because <laughs> very early on you find out they all wear this like one like cloak that has like all these like wispy things coming off of it tassels um, yeah. tassels that kind of show off this is a mistborn and it's funny because vin's like why on earth would we mark ourselves as mistborn and he's like oh people won't even fuck with you if you're a mistborn they see you going by they'll just be like you know what you can go, pretty much go where you want because I, mm-hmm. I can't fight this um i think that's just such a funny thing to think about because we should say that these powers are First of all, class based in a way. They only noble only nobles have the powers unless they have you know slept with people from who are the sky and accidentally passed it on that way. And Mistborn are one in a, a ten hundred thousand, whatever you want to say. Very very rare. Yeah, um, we don't, we only see in the first book what three we see then Kelsier and Shaw Alarian or whatever her name is Sean Alaria yeah Sean Alaria. Yeah. Um, and I guess, although not technically a Mistborn, Lord Ruler kind of counts because he has True. a lot of that. Um, we'll talk about we'll talk about what he is. We the will next talk book. about the Lord Ruler. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so real quick, I just oh, go ahead, sir. You go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just going to say, from this first book, I have three scenes that really stuck out to me that are really okay. great. One is when Vin trains with Breeze. Because at one point, there's a great there's a great thing Sanderson does here where he sends Vin off to learn the specifics of each sort of power that they have access to from people who can just do that one thing. And Breeze's power, Breeze is a guy who can push on people's emotions, called a soother. And in doing so, he can, like, say you have different emotions going on. If you're angry and you're also, like, confused, he can push down on confusion to get you just angry. That way, you know, you'll, you'll be more pissed. And there's just a great moment where he's just sitting there because his power doesn't require him to like say anything or even really have line of sight to people. He just doesn't know they're there. And he just explains to her the, the, how, how subtle you have to be. You can't just, you know, blindly push people's emotions. They'll know you're doing something to them. It's much more about being very carefully and fine tuning it, which I, I love that scene. It was a really great 
uh, way to explain that. And Breeze is a really good... They're all good characters, but Breeze is one of my favorites. Yeah, and I think the interesting line you have to thread that Sanderson does very well, and I haven't met... Because I've been trying to explain some of the powers to my friends, and I realize I'm not as good at it, obviously. One of the things that you have to thread is that, like, soothers, and then the opposite will be rioters who can, like, you know, push your emotions... Um, no, pull. Pull your emotions, sorry. Um, is it's not mind control. A lot of times when you explain it, it kind of sounds like, oh, they can just make you feel however they want, and it's not that. They can just kind of smooth or roughen the edges how th- how they please. Um, but they can't necessarily completely sway somebody in a different direction unless that person is already, you know, very swayable. Right. It's like you can't you can't be sitting there perfectly happy and content, and then the, the soother or rider comes along and makes you pissed. Like you have to already be feeling that thing. They they, they can they can you play other emotions, and 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 mess with you that way. But like you said, you can't just make someone feel anything. They have to already be feeling it, and then you have to push them from there. And they don't have the ability to discern exactly what emotions you're feeling. They have to guess, which makes them all very good at you know reading people. Yeah, which is a, just a, a mundane skill. Also, another great scene is Vin, at one point in the book, her role in, this, in the high society is to infiltrate high society. So she's pretending to, pretend to be a noble woman and go in and, and sort of like make her way. And she comes across this character named Cliss. And Cliss is sort of a gossip character, a very airhead, yeah. bubbly character. But later on, there's a moment where shit's about to get bad in the city. And the Lord Ruler is starting to really, really tamp down on things. And uh, Sean Alarian, I can't remember her name, something like that, is coming. To, she's a Mistborn, turns out, is coming to kill Ellen, who is a guy that Vin has fallen in love with. And she comes across Cliss again. And Cliss reveals that actually she's not just some idiot airhead. She is, in fact, a master manipulator and information gathering person and it's a great moment where, where Vin just realizes how over her head all this shit has really been the whole time yeah yeah I think the first book um some of my favorite scenes um I definitely love the I mean, honestly the um prologue just where you first kind of meet Kelsier and then because I just the prologue is one of the weirdest scenes because I, I it's one of them I just have a distinct vision of like if if it if it were a movie I can like literally see it, it it's it's just one of those for me um, basically Kelsier goes and talks to the sky and then one of the older ones is like oh yeah he's like I'm gonna free you guys and they're like there's no way it's ever gonna happen and then the next morning he's killed their master and burned everything down and oh I guess we have to I guess we have to be free all of a sudden and I just thought that was that was like a really strong way to start the book um and then oh and then i love when when kelsey first meets vin because it's such it's that moment where she's where you really she meets somebody who's really powerful but also seems like a good person because he walks in and he you know he accosts her her crime boss at the time and sends the guy off to be a beggar and just and everyone in the room is just like yep this guy's cool we, we we're, we're cool with him now and I thought that was great. And crucially, it's the first time that Vin meets someone who doesn't betray her. Yes. Because the, and the, one of the things, it almost becomes annoying how often Vin is just like, you can't ever trust anyone, I'll be betrayed. You can't trust anyone, I'll be betrayed throughout the whole book. Um, but yeah, eventually she, she, she does break on that. She realizes that uh, Kelsey was a trustworthy character who, at the end of the book, honestly shocking to me, dies. I yeah, was so not, well. Yeah, 
I was Three so sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so sure that this was going to be a series-long character. Mm-hmm. And when I first read his death scene, I was like, I put a question mark on my head. I'm like, he has to fake this somehow. He's the cool, you know, suave guy. He's gonna, he's gonna figure it out. But no, he act, Sanderson actually commits to having one of the most important characters actually die, and it is, um, I would say one one of the pieces of media that has the most influential character deaths ever to me is Gurren Lagann with Kamina dying. Spoiler mm. alert for that show. Um, and I, th- I honestly think that as far as most shows and books go, no one has done it as good as Gurren Lagann. I think this series is up there because yeah. you never stop feeling Kelsier's influence over everyone in the book, even through to the third one. Yeah. And it's never, it's never like ham-fisted or overdone. It is very much like this guy was Im- very important to this group of people and they are going to feel it. For the rest well, of their time together. You know what I love, Seth, though? To go back just a little bit, is when you're talking about Vin, the annoying part of her, who I was trying to say, they'll always betray you. How well does that pay off in two fucking books, though? That's true. That's true. We're going to get there. And the best part about Kelsier, though, to me as a character, is that when he dies, he does betray her. Because he didn't tell her. He did not let her know that it was going to happen, even though it was part of his plan. And so the person that taught her to trust again, in the end, still does betray her. But she she doesn't begrudge him for it. even really realize it, I think. I mean, I guess she kind of gets a little bit, but... Yeah. Also, that scene before he dies, where he fights the, the Inquisitor and kills one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he finally figures out that if you cut their head off, they die. <laughs> that is the um, best action scene in the book, if you ask me. I think for the first book, yeah, that's probably the best one. Yeah. Um, and then while we're talking about, um, first book stuff, another great scene comes from a great character we should mention is, um, we say, we both say his name differently. I call him Sazed. Um, Sazed. I call him Sazed. Yeah. He's a loyal, um, you know, kind of a servant character. He's a, called a terrorist and he, mm-hmm. he has another form of magic because guess what? There's more than one system called Ferrukimi where instead of burning metals, how do you say it? Ferrukimi. It's the same thing. Instead of burning metals, you can literally store your physical and mental attributes into these metals mm-hmm. um, and then tap them later. So, you know, and one of the big examples of it is like uh, a person who's burning, which would be iron or um, tin, no, pewter, to mm-hmm. like enhance their strength can only become so strong once they've like reached their peak. But someone who has ferrukimi can. If they want to become two times stronger for five minutes or six times stronger for 45 seconds, you know, they have, right. there's really no bound how much they can use it as long as they have that much stored up. Um, and there's a great scene where he saves her from a steel inquisitor um, in the rain when she can't really see what's happening and he, he won't really explain to her what happened. Um, but yeah, and Sage becomes the, the giga character in, in yeah. the, the series. He's amazing. And I, I absolutely love Sage. Well, the great thing about these books is the first one focuses on, on Allomancy and gives you hints of ferrochemy. And the second book focuses on ferrochemy and gives you hints of hemallergy. And the third book is everything, but mostly it's going to tell you about hemallergy and how it yeah. works. So, yeah, three badger systems, all the way to metal. Also, my, yeah, I was going to say, my the, the scene, also the scene where Kelsier dies is great because it's the first time the Lord, rule, no, sorry, the second time the Lord Ruler shows up. 
But I think that the first time he shows up, he never actually gets out of his carriage, right? He stays in the carriage the whole time and doesn't appear yeah. for the executions. But everyone, when he appears, can feel him soothing them. And it's so intense that everyone just gets depressed. It's so yeah, great. Yeah, depressed. And, like, Vin is like, what the fuck is happening to me before she realizes what's going on? That's a, That was a great scene, too, where, like, the evil overlord literally can just make you feel bad by being near you. And But the thing is, it works. It's part of the magic system. You understand, you understand the mechanism of how it's working, you know? So I really enjoyed that. Um, and we should say that, uh, and as he dies, as you said, the Lord Ruler says, you don't know what I do for you. And then gets gets marked. Yeah. And it's a really great sequel set up. Yeah. And the, another thing to point out, um, we do find out about that character, is that he is not, not only does he have the allomantic powers, he also has the fairy chemical powers. Um, Did you not love the frame mechanism of the book where it's the journal entries from the, 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 what do you call it? The hero of ages of past. Every one of Sanderson's books has a, such a dope framing device for the little blurbs before the chapters. Yeah. Honestly up there with like Dune for the princess Irulan stuff. Yeah. Crazy. good, And like, I'm right now I'm reading one of his books, words of radiance and he's switching the framing device Mm -hmm. and it is so cool. Um, isn't, it, yeah. isn't it sorry go ahead no i was gonna say but yeah i like the framing device um because it's a big bait and switch you're like oh i'm reading the i'm reading the lord ruler's old journal but nope it's actually the guy the lord ruler betrayed to become the lord ruler yeah we should point out the lord ruler is like say zed a terrorist or he was yeah. in the past and he betrayed alindy the hero of ages and did something we don't know what happens in the first book but he did something that made him into the lord ruler and so that's where, that's where the first book ends. Now, Seth, do you want to keep reading these synopses? You don't, don't mean to take a Will of Ascension. Well, go for it, man. Okay. So, the Will of Ascension. After the death of the Lord Ruler, the final empire has splintered into several competing domains. The center of it all is Luthadel, overseen by a parliamentary government put in place by Ellen Venture, Vin's lover. As Ellen navigates cutthroat politics and tries to keep his free state alive, Vin protects him against assassins, including the mysterious and violent, his mysterious violent half-brother, uh, Zane. Uh, Sezed, confidant and friend of Vin and Kelsier, investigates reports of the mist killing people and conf- connects the long-lost love. This all culminates with three armies marching on Luthadel in a desperate de- final confrontation in which Sezed's love is killed, members of the crew perish, and Vin eventually forces the competing warlords to serve Ellen. Following a mystical drumbeat that only she can hear, Vin discovers the source of the Lord Ruler's power beneath his palace, the Well of Ascension. Following a prophecy laid out by Sezed, who now realizes he was wrong, Vin takes up the power she finds there. A mist-made spirit stabs Ellen in an attempt to make her use the power, but she instead releases it. Ellen is saved and transformed into a mistborn by an ancient metal found in the well, but the power within, a deity called Ruin, escapes. Yep. So this is where the series really heats up because um, a character from the first book we didn't talk a whole lot about, um, Ellen, who is Vin's love interest. He was the heir to the um, House Venture, which was the most powerful of the noble houses um, in the, um, what is the name of the main city? Luthadel. Luthadel. And... Sorry, I thought my mic had just broken, but it didn't. We're good. Um, back in it. And Ellen had a lot of ideas about politics, which were 
would say pretty well spaced out throughout the book because in the beginning, I honestly thought he might have been some like weird, like like crazy racist. Because I thought maybe I thought maybe he actually believed that the ska were like mentally and physically lesser than. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out he was just trying to figure out um, different political theories. But basically, he has a political ideology that I wouldn't say is incredibly far off from what we talk about on our, on our main podcast he wants you know a government by the people and he wants you know less militaristic control and all that so he's trying to set that up he's been he's been doing it for a little while in luthadel and now enemies are marching on them including his dad straff venture mm-hmm. um he that's one of the armies come out of him and eventually there's another army as well who is this run by um set what's set's last name ashweather is his first name Oh yeah, it's Ashweather Set, um, who's a hilarious character. I, I oh yeah, actually, I'm really loving Set actually. Um, so yeah, basically there's a lot of a lot of turmoil going on there, and Vin is being followed by some shadow character at the beginning of the book. She's taken down all these mistings. She's out of Adium, which is the Alamantic metal that God metal. It's the god metal. When you burn it, you can see what your enemy is doing beforehand. But if they're also burning it, then they throw out 100 images. So, you know, kind of evens the playing field. But she's out of it at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also now has a companion who, from the last book, was a Conjurer. Yeah, he's a, he's a Conjurer character named Orshore, as I say it. I don't know. Um, he in the first book he was impersonating um, a nobleman named Lord Renault, who was mm-hmm. um, the one that Vin was pretending to be the niece of to get into the royal court. Um, and the entire time she was like she was unsettled with how into character this guy was. She was like, "God never breaks. What's his deal?" And it's because he's part of a you know a magical group of people um, or a group of beings, if you want different to. species. Yeah, who can eat a person's body? They can consume it. And then take on their look and affectations, and they normally have a lot of good ways to prod into the person's mind to find out, you know, who they were and how to act around people. Um, but now, um, she he took on the form of Kelsier at the end of the first book to rile up, you know, some uh, religious, not even religious, really. It becomes a religion. I mean, yeah. Um, but he, he wants to get people Jesus excited. Christ. Like he, yeah, yeah. He he's like, like, yeah, the resurrection, the second coming, basically. Yeah. So he does that, and now he, and now um, he's been told because the thing about the conjure people is they follow their contracts, a hundred percent. You tell them can't kill. They cannot kill um, a human, and um, they just they they have to follow their contract. So whenever Kelsier dies, he's like, "You're Vins now." And Vins like, "Okay, whatever." The Contra are a really great addition. We should also talk about the Coloss real quick, who are yeah. mentioned briefly in the first book, but never seen. But in the second book, I love, I love the Coloss because their description is so vivid. The idea of these little blue people who have this flag skin that's just so flabby hanging off of them. But then they, as they get bigger and bigger, they grow into the skin and they begin to split. It's just such an imaginative, weird thing, and I love it. Yeah, and they essentially grow forever because they only live to be about 20. And by the time you're 20, you're like 7 feet tall. No, Seth, 12, 13 12, feet 13, tall. yeah, sure. Um, and that's, yeah, that is a really, that was a really cool image. And they, another thing that pays off pretty well in the third book. Yeah, I just, I love the, I love Sanderson's, his imagination here. Like, this, the Chondra and the Coloss are both what I would say 
at their core, pretty basic stereotype, or not stereotypes, concepts. You know, the shapeshifters and the, the berserker giants. Those are those are pretty pretty common. But the twists he puts on them, like the conjurer can't kill, and their shapeshifting only works so they consume the corpse of the person and use their bones as the skeleton for themselves, yeah. is such a really cool way to, to give it a little spin that it makes it unique. Yeah, and the conjurer actually, I think, are probably my Honestly, my favorite part of the three books, I, I, especially in the third book, I really love how these people or the species is delivered on so thoughtfully. Um, and to the big one of the big running plots of the book is that you know because whenever a conjurer consumes someone, their skeleton is left behind, um, and they find another skeleton in the the um, the what do you want to call house it? venture house venture that they're living in so they know that there's a conjurer who has infiltrated them and the entire book vin is trying to find out who in the crew or who in the house it could be um and then i mentioned the shadow figure earlier which is one of the most interesting characters ever well so hold on now there's two shadow figures that she's dealing with well okay yeah i should have mentioned that when i said shadow figure i just meant a actual physical person who was in the shadows and his name is zane Yep. And he's also a Mistborn. He is the illegitimate son of Straff Venture. And he's working for Straff Venture, kind of. He's also constantly poisoning Straff Venture yeah. and trying to kill him. <laughs> but yep. the, mo- the thing that sold me on this character was in the first sentence of his first perspective chapter, which is when it just says, Kill him, God told Zane. And I had to had to scratch my head a little bit. I'm like, so God is talking to this guy. And that's when I was like, okay, this is great. I'm already, I'm already in. And we should mention that both Zane and the Chondra only get paid in Atium. That's their only payment that, they, that they'll take. Yeah. Well, Zane kind of gets bribed with it. But the Chondra only work for Atium, which will come important in book three. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Zane is great because he's kind of like the dark mirror of Ellen and the, the second love interest. There's kind of a love triangle there for a little bit with him and Vin, yeah. which is kind of intriguing, actually, I'll say, for a while there. Yeah, I got. I, I was very interested because um, at first I was like, I don't know if I'm in for a love triangle. But there was a really good moment when, um, right when I was kind of like, I don't like this that much. Um, Zane is talking and he's just like, oh yeah, you know, they... The, these people, they only ever see us as a weapon. And she's like, oh, well, Ellen doesn't see me that way. And then the next day, Ellen is, because of circumstances, is forced to be like, well, I have a Mistborn, so what are you going to do about it? And she kind of feels that way. And the thing is, it sucks because as the reader, you're like, Ellen doesn't actually feel that way, but he's in the scenario right now, and he has to say this, and it's going to drive Vin away. Um, Vin and Ellen stay together. But... Right. It does actually drive a very interesting wedge in them is does, you know, does the government, is this new government still going to see Mistborns as mercenaries, as like machine guns, or is it going to be different? And it was, it was a very, very good touch that actually sold me in the love triangle for a little bit. Yeah. I'll say Zane is, a, is, is written very well as a manipulator, but also a human, there's a human aspect to him that he's not like a complete evil, evil sociopath. Like, he, he, he claims he is, and it seems like he is, but there's a human part to him that you have to empathize with a little bit, especially once you realize what was really going on with him the whole time. Um, yeah. But, Seth, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Were, were Vin and Ellen fucking before marriage? I, that's the thing is, you, you mentioned something about this to me the other day, and the weird thing is, I've never even thought about it. 
Yeah. I never even thought about it because the problem for me is I don't know how old they're supposed to be. No, Ellen is like 21 or so. I know that. I know that. But the thing, that's the thing is like, it's never, a lot of times, especially with Vin's age, it's not written out concrete. It's mostly like she's kind of young, this and that. So in my head, I always pictured Vin to be 16 at the beginning of the book. So for me, I just never expected her to be having sex because I'm a person who, you know, is like 18's the age. Maybe by hero of ages, she's banging. But until then, I think she's just kind of in this this little, you know, this love thing. So, but if I were to imagine, because I do imagine when they adapt this, they're going to start her off a little bit older, probably 18, 19 years old. Then yeah, probably. Because they, they do, there is a scene where you know they were fucking in, in Will of Ascension, right? When that is true, in the yeah. tent traveling, you know that that, that happened. I'm just talking about when they lived together in, that, in, in House Venture before, or Keep Venture, was there fucking going on uh, before God consented? <laughs> because there's a contention of people who are against this, right? Yeah, apparently. Some some fans. What's their, do they have, a, they have like a, a deal, or is it just they don't like it? No. They're they just, just insane people. Or are they just Mormons? <laughs> just crazy, I think. Because we should mention that Brandon Sanderson is a Mormon. Right, He yeah. teaches a class at Brigham Young University. And now that I think about it, if his readership is Mormon, then they might uh, be entirely against people having sex before marriage. So that could be where that comes from. One day, Seth, we're going to lay out our theory about how it's not the Jews that control Hollywood, it's the Mormons, but, 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 secretly. But, 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 um, next. Oh, right, they'll kill us. Oh, um, sorry. Uh, but we should say, I really loved, and I'm sure you'll, you'll love the scene too you talk about it as well, the scene where, she, where her and Zane finally, where she realizes what Zane is, and they have a fight. Because This is the best action scene in all three books. I think this is the one where I was, I was glued to my book. Do you know why I love it so much, though? Why? It's because there's so little use of allomancy. It is yeah. a, a dirty, brutal... Just confrontation is over very fast. It is not some drawn out affair. Like it's over in like in in like real time. Probably forty five seconds is what, yeah. it, what it takes for for them to finally have their their fight. And it just it's like stabbing and I don't know. It's like it's such an up close, grueling yeah. like real life fight. Yeah, because it is, and there's so much stuff at play. Because not only has Zane officially like kind of revealed who he is, you know, to to Vin like mentally, and she's like, okay, this guy's unhealthy. We're gonna have to take this out. But then, um, this is when we find out that Orasaur, the Condra, don't forget, she gave Orasaur a bead of Otium to hold on yeah. to her, and then she calls for it in the fight. And what happens? He says no because he's he is actually the the one has been infiltrated because we find out that Condra can eat other Condra. He's actually a Condra named Tinsoon, who is loyal to Zane at the moment. Yep. Um, it says he won't give it to her, but he ends up um, he ends up revealing that Alamancer's Mistborn can actually kind of affect Condra, and that ends up helping um, Vin in the fight. Mm-hmm. He specifically he, so he, but he betrays Zane. Like it's yeah, yeah, up, yeah. But he betrays him. Which is completely against the Conjurer code. Yeah. And it's such a fucking great scene. The the yeah. reveal of Tensoon and the fight with Zane all at the same time are just yeah. amazing. Because basically the way that the way the fight ends, and it's so beautiful, is that Zane has plenty of ATM and he can fight and he can predict her every move, so she can't beat him. So then she's like, guess what? I'm just gonna hold my knife out and be limp, have no thoughts in my head. And then it's right when I see 
where he's going. I'm just going to turn on him. And it fucking works. And it just the way everything builds to that moment and him dying out. And then as he's dying out, God says to him, you weren't even crazy in the first place. And then he dies. And that is when I was like, there's got to be a whole other book about that scene right there. And guess what? The next book basically is. Yeah. And the and so that was what I was going to say. My, I didn't put it in the document. My favorite thing in this whole book, and I just remember it is the framing mechanism of this book is also the journals from the past, but it's of a different person who was around the Hero of Ages, Alindi, right? Yep. And at one point, it says, I was called, I can't remember the exact title, but it was this thing, right? A special sounding title. And later on, a peasant, a ska person, refers to Say Zed by a different title. And then when he's reading, because sometimes they'll actually read the document in the actual like text of the story. He read the document. The, the word that it said before was changed to the new thing the sky had said. Yeah. And if you if you were like really into it and thinking, you were like, wait a minute. Did Sanderson fuck up? Was this a mistake? No. Yeah. No. It turns out that this thing, this, 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 this overarching being behind all this stuff can change the written word. Unless it's, unless it's embossed into metal. Yeah, because one of the things, we, it's actually funny because it's one of the first things Says reads in the whole book when he's traveling with Marsh, who we haven't mentioned yet, but we got to talk about Marsh in a second, um, is he, he sees words that says, I write these words in steel for anything not set in metal cannot be trusted. And he's just like, oh, that's some crazy thing somebody said. Yep. It turns out that's because everything else they read can be absolutely manipulated. And that's why they get all these conflicting accounts of who the Hero of Ages is, of who everybody is, of who the Lord Ruler even is. Um, and it was just such a cool touch. We didn't talk about Twindle or Tyndall yes. at all. So that's when we're at Marsh is Kelsey's brother. Mm-hmm. In the first book, he's like... He's like, I don't give a shit about any of you. I honestly am mad at Kelsier, but I want to infiltrate the Obligators because I want to see what they know. And yep. he does it, and then they kill him. Quote, 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 quote. They kill him, but they don't actually kill him because it turns out he's actually become one of the Steel Inquisitors. Um, and at yep. the end of the first book, he actually does help Vin in defeating the Lord Ruler and tells her that all of the Steel Inquisitors have a little metal pin in their back that if you just pull it out, they die. Yeah, but after that one, you know, use of his his human heart, he has now become a true member of the the Steel Ministry and is on a war path for something we don't quite understand yet. Well, I thought that in the beginning of Will of Ascension, when he's traveling with Sezed, when Sezed wakes up and he's gone, I thought that was when Ruin took control the first time, or at yeah, least started to influence him. I feel like that's when it started. Yeah, because after that and he. Never does it anything good again. Well, yeah, because okay. we, we see him again at the end of the book, and he fucking almost kills Sazed. Yeah, and he says he can't control himself. Yeah, and but, that becomes a big part of the book as well. So, how did you feel about the final siege of Luthadel with the Coloss attack and everything? Yeah. So, re- before we talk about that, we should mention Tindwill is another oh, character. She is a also a terraceman or terrace person. Um, she knows says knows a lot of people in the, in um, Luthadel. She helps Ellen to kind of form a more charismatic and authoritative version of himself to be king. A lot gives of great better, scenes there. I love that. Yeah, gives him a better wardrobe. All this stuff. Um, she my him. Exactly. Her she, she, Saze, she pretty woman's him actually. Yeah. Her and says have a bit of a romance. Um, although says is a eunuch because that is how it is with the keepers as they're called. 
Um, Which, let me just say, folks, not a barrier. If you're determined enough, not a barrier. No barriers. Um, and she is the one who is helping him with all this research when they eventually find out that Ruin has changed it all and that Mustafa Metal is the only thing that matters. Um, and then in the Siege of Luthadel, we finally have big like big character deaths outside of Kelsier because we lose uh, we lose Doxen. clubs, Doxen, who I, I'm gonna give a whole postmortem for Doxen in a minute because he's my boy, and then yeah. Tindwill actually dies as well. But all that combined gives us a great scene where Sazed actually gets the Hulk out. He grows his muscles to be fucking gigantor size and just starts picking these coloss up, throwing them around, and closing the big gates. Yep. And it was awesome. It's a great action scene for a character who has never done a single action thing on screen or on page before that. Yeah. He rescued Vin. That all happened off off page, essentially. Yep. Um, so I love, I love it. I love the part where he fucking taps those fucking pewter mines and goes to fucking town. Yep. It's such a great, it's, it's a, cause the thing about the, the whole, the whole siege scene is no one's ready. No one's prepared. No one is good at this. And he just barely manages to get by with all this power. Yeah. Another great use of it, kind of the opposite use of his powers that I loved at the very beginning of this book is when he is with Marsh and they're going out into that pit and Marsh has to find this whole long pulley system to get down and Sazed is just like, oh, I can just store my physical weight and I'll become as light as a feather and I'll just float down to the bottom. And I was like, that's amazing. That is, that's the thing Sanderson does best where he, he builds these systems, builds these rules and is like, okay, now that I know everything about it, here's where we can have fun. And that is just such a cool use of it. You have got, when you, when you, the next thing after Stormlight has got to be the Wax and Wayne books because you're going to love it. Yeah, it's on the list for sure. But Intendual dies, dies, and there's a the scene where he goes and finds her body is heartbreaking. It is devastating, and we should say that Sazed before this, his specialty as a as a keeper was uh, religions. He liked to store, he liked to like learn about religions yeah. and catalog them and, and all this kind of, and all this kind of stuff. And when he finds Tendul's body, he loses his faith in yeah. everything, and it just d- destroys him uh, as as a person. And it's a very deeply emotional scene. Yeah, it's it's very cool. He had even um, throughout the whole throughout the first two books, he kind of gives all these religious people to be like, "Oh, this is what you should believe in," and they're like, "Why do you know all this?" and becomes pretty another thing that gets paid off on in the yep. next book. Mm-hmm. It is just crazy. You're like, "Oh, this is just a cool way to write a bunch of religions in the world. They don't have to matter," and then it comes back. I, he, what, he loses his faith there. One thing I love about Sanderson uh, is the characters. They go through some shit. They get put yeah. through the ringer. Like, say Zed is fucked up after all this, like, physically and emotionally. And Vin, when she gets back, is also almost goddamn destroyed because she's been burning pewter the entire time to get back here and not, you know, drop dead of exhaustion. And so she is also just fucked. And uh, Ham gets injured. We're going to talk about Ham, really. Ham's a, a pewter burner. Fucking uh, Breeze almost loses his damn mind, you know, hiding from the the coloss it's people do not come out of this this conflict unscathed and it's very good about that yeah and it's one of the very interesting things about um the way sanderson talks about his books because you know one thing he constantly mentions is that the beginning of his career because he wrote 13 books before he ever got published um and mistborn and his later but the way of kings are redone versions of two of the books he had written before before he ever got published 
And one thing he mentions is that when he's trying to get published in the beginning, everyone was like, you got to write what George R.R. R. Martin writes because he was the big fantasy writer who was selling at the time. Like, we need dark fantasy. We need something more adult, something more this. And Sanderson's like, I just can't do it. And I'm like, I understand that, but damn Sanderson, some of this stuff does get dark. My man, yeah. you are not you are not anti-dark at all. I shouldn't say that. You are not <laughs> a, a sunny side up writer all the time. Right. He's very he's better at it. Um than a lot of I think some fantasy writers and some writers in general skew a little too dark. I do think I think he hits a very good point in the middle where it's like you will have these big darker gut wrenching moments and then you'll have some of your let's let's have fun moments i'll say that i think the really big thing sanderson does that sets him apart from someone like george r R. martin which i have no no disrespect to to martin i think he's a perfectly good writer and i i I enjoyed uh game of thrones for what it was yeah is that sanderson and i appreciate this in a writer is not willing to just use rape as a plot device or 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 a happenstance sexual peril is so common in books. I could not believe it when I started reading like broader fantasy books. How much, many times people get raped or the threat of rape arises, and you're just like, "Whoa!" I wanted a you know a light heart, not a light hearted, but I wanted a high fantasy adventure. I didn't want to talk here about fucking sexual assault. Exactly. And so and a lot of people use that. it as a shortcut for sympathy. They're mm-hmm. just like, oh, you got to care about this character because they were raped at one point. And or I'm like, to make you hate somebody. Yeah. And like, obviously, I feel bad for this person or I hate this person because of what they did. But you used a shortcut and it, feel, it feels really lazy. There are, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's always lazy. There are people who have done it and it, it means something to the story. And I wouldn't say it's just there just to be there. But there's a lot of it that is like that. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate how Vin is always in so many terrible situations, but at no point is anybody just like, ah, oh, yeah, I can't wait to fucking, you know, rape her or whatever. Yeah. Like, sexual peril doesn't happen, which I think yeah. I appreciate. I'm like, because I don't really like that in my stories yeah. too much. I think that Sanderson does it well in that when he talks about the thieving crews that she's been a part of, he he does mention, oh, these are older men, she's a young girl, she wants to be as invisible as possible. Um... And, but he never outright says it. It's just more like anything can happen. And I'll, I I like that a lot more. It wasn't just like, I was scared I was going to get raped every night. You know, it, was, it wasn't as outward as that. Um, and I think that's a good way to do it. If, if, you're, if it's not going to be a very important thing to the plot, um, a good way to do it is just to be like, this is part of the world. And people have to be mindful of it. But you don't have right. to just shove it in like some people do. Uh, but yeah, so, and then I will just say that I loved at the end of the book when she finds the Bowl of Ascension and we don't quite know what happened yet, but we know something bad happened. And the part where Say Zed realizes that the spirit has been following her around, we haven't talked really about this spirit, was actually trying to warn them about what was happening is just such a great reveal of you think it's one way, but it's a different way. I think there was a motto at some point for Mistborn, I believe, which was there's always another secret. Yep. And that is so true. There's always another fucking secret to learn. That's very true. Yeah, he's it's it's a it runs through the um the first book a lot. Is that Kelsier is like, there's always another secret. And yeah, it, it definitely is amped up in this one. Alright, so if you're ready to move on to oh wait, no, hold on. Real quick. Yeah. I talked about all these already. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll just also, say it uh, is 
important to note that at the end of Well of Ascension, um, the spirit creature cuts Ellen's stomach. She she's it. She gives him this piece of metal she finds on the ground. He he eats it, and she finds out he starts burning pewter. Turns out he's he becomes misborn. Yeah. Well, at first, it's trying to tempt her into using the power to heal him instead of releasing it. Yeah. Um, and then she finds this metal called Lorosinium or something like that, which is like the only beat of it left that turn you into a Mistborn. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to say about this book before we move on is I always love the scenes where Ellen is trying his best to make this politicalism work and just gets kicked in the dick every single time. It never works out for him. Yeah, and speaking of that, there is one other action scene that is up there for me, and it's the scene where the um, the election hall is like overrun um, by is it it's it's it Straff's men, right? In the end, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Ellen or um, Vin has to fight off uh, four like really big guys, and she ends the fight by headbutting a man so hard that his head explodes. <laughs> It's so gruesome. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Brandon Sanderson is, does not shy away from, from ultra-violence happening when it's necessary. Yeah. Um, oh, and also, Seth, reading, rereading it again, I realize there's another scene that's almost as gruesome as that, but not quite as explicitly detailed, which is when Vin falls out of the sky with a Koloss sword and cuts Straff and his horse in half with a single hit. Yep. Like, it doesn't go into the gory details, but imagine the, the mental image of a man and a horse being sliced in two. With a sword. Yeah. And it's pretty fucking gnarly. Because I've seen a lot of horror movies where people get cut in half, but I haven't seen a lot of horses getting cut in half. So that's... That'll be interesting for the adaptation. Yeah. Okay, Seth. Moving on. You want to do the Hero of Ages uh, synopsis? Sure. So. Oh, and then before I read the synopsis, one thing we should also mention is that the for the entire book, because of not reading stuff that was written in metal, um... Vin is like, oh, I need to take the power of the well and release it, not keep it for myself. But what that actually does is it releases ruin into the world, which is, you know, what we mentioned earlier was changing all the documents and stuff anyway. So it's the, yep. kind of the evil force. So after the release of ruin, the mists are devouring Skadriel, and Vin and Ellen are attempting to consolidate the human survivors while following a trail of clues left by the Lord Ruler in vast underground caches spread across his domain. Spook, a young member of the crew, is dispatched north where he has a personal encounter with Ruin that leaves him transformed. Various forces uh, and people across Skadriel converge as Ruin works to destroy their world. Armies of monsters rampage across the land, and the Contra, the oldest servants of the Lord Ruler, refuse to face reality. All this comes to a head in a final, final battle where Vin takes up the power of Ruin's half-dead brother preservation and assists Ellen in a desperate fight to prevent Ruin from becoming whole again. Ellen is killed and Vin throws herself against Ruin, killing them both in the process. Saves, finding their corpses, absorbs the power of both Ruin and preservation, becoming a godlike being that fixes the environment of Skadriel and creates an Edenic paradise for the survivors to begin anew. Sorry, uh, Edenic, like the Garden of Eden. Um, oh, Edenic. Got it. Yeah. But I'll just say that this book is a masterpiece in tying together everything. Yeah. It all comes together. Exactly. I would say that if you go buy 100 books, I'd say 
most of them would have pretty good ideas and beginnings. Almost none of them would have good endings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, every one of Sanderson's books I've read have had a good ending. Um, and then this is the only, so far the only series I've read of him that has you know complete bookends. But it, it works really, really well. Hero of Ages is really kind of like a flex on a lot on most authors. I don't think a lot of people have done it as well as he has here. And yeah, I, I just I think that everything ties up. Think like I said, we we're talking about things we didn't even think would need tying up become incredibly important in this last book. And we're going to talk about those yeah. in a little bit. Like okay, I'll just come out to it right, right now and say it. No, Seth, you should you should mention it. The linchpin scene of the whole goddamn series can be boiled down to one moment. And Seth, what is that moment? You know about the earring? The earring. The earring. So, and it, it works on multiple levels, but one thing that's been carried out through all books is that Vin has this earring that was given to her by her mother. Her mother, by the way, killed their baby sister, mm-hmm. and um, her and her brother, Reen, had to escape um, to get away from her. And Reen eventually ends up betraying Vin, but we find out that he actually stands up to the... Um, the interrogation of an inquisitor which is apparently impossible like n- no matter what they will get the truth out of you but he never told on vin um and it was it was very cool but yeah she has his earring it was given to her um and she wears it but if you pay close attention throughout the books the only time she's been able to harness the powers of the mist are the very few times she doesn't have that earring on when she fights the Lord Ruler, because she's been stripped down and thrown in prison, she doesn't have her earring on. When she... No, no, remember? He can push on metal inside her body, unlike most Alamancers, and he pushes the earring out of her Oh, yeah, ear. yeah, yeah. He pushes it out. And then um, when she... <laughs> when she takes her earring out and throws it through Marsh's head... Um, yup. And then... Um, the moment in this and, book, which at, is... At the end, when... At the very end. Yeah, when... Shit's gone wild. Yeah. And... We should talk real quick. The, 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 the earring, we should say, is the last kind of magic, the hemolurgy of the books. Which... Yeah, because this is the book where we find out about hemolurgy, which is what yeah. the Steel Inquisitors use. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a specific kind of magic where if a person has a power, you can take it from them by driving a spike through their heart uh, and stealing their power, and then you put it into somebody else, and they then get that power. And there's a there, and what we learn is the Steel Inquisitors use this obviously that's sort of how they, their whole thing functions. We also learn that the Chondra have a pair of spikes that lets them turn them from these animals called mist wraiths into a Chondra. The Coloss have spikes, which is what, apparently there's a great moment. One of my favorite moments of this whole book is when Vin commands because they can command the Coloss. We can talk about this, like they can command them when she tells that Coloss to show her how more Coloss are made, and he takes the dead skin off of a, of a coloss and tries to go put it into a living human being and you realize what they really are it's it's mind-blowing yeah um so yeah we learn about them and how all that works and then the thing i'm loving is we learn about the chondra and the chondra are something i could i wish i had a series of books about they are so interesting in that They've they've been around since the beginning, basically, with the with the Lord Ruler, um, 
and they're all still alive, basically. Yep. And each generation, eventually that generation um, will stop fulfilling contracts and they'll just live in their homeland and just makes laws. And it's almost relatable in a way that the oldest generations are the ones who are making all these laws and it's affecting the younger ones. But um, Tin Soon, who is the, the contract we've gotten to know the most, isn't actually of a very young generation. He's of what he's th- second or third, third generation. He's third generation, which is pretty old because they're on like seven or eight at this point. Yeah. Um, and he's one of the old, I think he's one of the only third generationers who's still doing it. Yeah. I think he's 600 years old. Yeah. So it's very, it's very, very interesting. And basically they have this, you know, tribal council. And the thing is, the, when, once you retire, or once, when you're not filling contracts, you get to have your dream body. And they all, and you, you'd think, oh, they take the body of some, like, you know, sexy, jacked-up six-pack person. No, no, no. Their bodies are made out of, like, like ebony. And, and, and crystal. Crystals. And, like, fancy trees that you can't even, you've never heard of. Like, they're branches and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it is so cool it's such a cool idea i love that they have these crazy exotic skeletons they form translucent or transparent flesh around them to show them off while they do stuff and it's just it's just this wonderful alien world with its own culture and politics and history so separate while it's happening and i just love learning about it the conjure chapters were so good yeah because it's one of those times where you're just thrown into yeah, you're already in a fantasy novel, but you're thrown into something completely different. <laughs> it reminds me of the beginning of Stormlight Archive, to be honest. The prologue I was, I was of Stormlight. literally about to say that. So, yeah, I agree. But, Seth, I just wanted to talk to you real quick about... You've listed this as one of your favorite scenes, which is what happens to Spook. Yeah, so Spook is a character we should... We, we haven't got a lot of credit to, but he's a character who um, is Clubs, the, the artisan we mentioned earlier. Um, it's his nephew... And his first name, his first name is Lesty Borns, but no one wants to say that. So then, um, Kelsey starts calling him Spook. That becomes his thing. He's a ten eye, which means he can burn ten, which enhances your senses, you know, sight, hearing, touch, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he, he, you know, he stays a ten eye. He becomes a scout um, in Well of Ascension. He is the one that helps Ellen and Vin escape until they end up coming back because they're doing the wrong thing. Um, and he, near the end of that book, he starts to feel really bad that he's not a Mistborn. He's like, if I was a Mistborn, I could solve everyone's problems. Um, so he's been charged in the third book with being a spy for, um, a man named the Citizen. Yeah. Um, who runs his own, basically his own shadow splinter government, I should say, um, that does not follow all of Ellen's rules. Um, and it's in the place where Ellen's actually from, the place where the Venture family is from. Um, he runs that place now. And so the and the the punishment there in, in their law is you get thrown into a building and they burn it down. <laughs> um, and you're fucked, you know, basically. I want to say I felt like the citizen and his government were probably my least favorite part of the book because it's such yeah. a transparent, like, like uh, a hit job on the French Revolution and the Paris Commune and stuff like that. And they did, they did something in Game of Thrones with the High Sparrow, this exact same kind of character and concept. Yeah. And I didn't enjoy it in either one. Like, you you got to do better than this to, to, to impress me. Yeah. Um, 
Well, See, it does I, lead to some very cool that. stuff that happens. But it leads to Spook. You know, he's been punished by the law. He's in a burning building. And then he wakes up, and what does he see? He sees Kelsier. Seth, what happens to him before that, though? How does he get to the burning building? Oh, well, yeah, he gets into a fight with mm-hmm. the citizen and his guards. Because the citizen basically is like, we got to kill everyone who used to be noble and has any noble blood in them. we got to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. But turns out that he has alamancers in his crew, which means... People have, you know, they have royal blood in, or noble blood in them. Mm-hmm. So he's breaking his own rules. He finds it out. Freaking, he, start, he starts fighting them. He gets stabbed um, th- th- through another man. Yep. He gets stabbed. And that's when he, you know, kind of get, um, gets cajoled into the... Well, he wakes up in that burning building, and who does yeah. he see? He sees Kelsier. He sees the man who... Sacrifice his life, Kelsier. And Kelsier's like, hey, I know you're going to need some help, so guess what? You can burn pewter now. Drink this vial, you're all good. He drinks it, he starts burning pewter, and he go he goes nuts. He gets he Which gets out. fucking crazy, because we've been told multiple times, there's only two ways you can have it. You're a missing with one power, or a misborn with all. Nobody has two. Yeah. And this, we, got, we got one or all. And all this is working towards the linchpin we mentioned with the earring. Because yep. in we learn about hemallergy, which basically, like I said, the Steel Inquisitors, Inquisitors use it. And what it consists of is a metal spike of one of the alimantic metals being driven through a person who uses that alimantic metal and into another person. It can be delayed, but the faster it goes from that person to another person... Um, the stronger the power is going to be, and they will then have that power as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the, we first see it with a Steel Inquisitor, and then we learn that's what happens to um, Spook, is that he got stabbed through another man who had pewter, and now he had it as well. Um, and then the Kelsier vision was actually ruined talking to him and taking advantage of his, um, his new powers. And then we learn Vin and the Earring... Because Vin's baby sister was a seer, which means she could burn copper, and she was killed with that earring. No, bronze. Bronze, sorry. Um, and then it became a hemorrhagic spike in Vin. And the thing is, if you already have one of the alimantic powers, and then you get the spike, it really enhances it. Which is why we find out that Vin can actually pierce copper clouds and see people who are burning even past it. Because she was a misborn had a hemorrhagic spike put in her of um, bronze and then that's how it happens and when but the thing is the mists can't affect you when you have the hemorrhagic spike so what anytime she's had it out is when the mists were actually able to help her because they were trying to help her all the time but couldn't and the fact that the fucking earring because of the most the the linchpin literally of the series it was a, a masterstroke because what we learn is that Ruin was talking to her through that thing. And every time in the past book she heard Reen's voice in her head, it was Ruin talking to her with Reen's voice. And all those annoying scenes of her being like, don't trust this person, was Ruin fucking with her brain. And that's what he was doing to Zane in the second book. Yep. And it is a ma- just a majestic scene. It ties everything together so well. It's incredible. And then another thing that gets tied together very well, we mentioned it in the brief description, is that, you know, um, Sazed 
gets the powers with Ruin of Preservation, and he decides to restore, um, I shouldn't call it, I always call it Earth in my head, but it's not, it's, you know, Skadriel. And he restores it, and what he uses to restore it is all the information he had from the pre-Lord Ruler religions. Yep. So he makes a... Star you know, charts and, and exactly. coast map, Because one thing about these books that it's even hard when I read it to remember is that there are no green plants. There are no tree. Everything is pretty much covered in ash. There are very... Yep. When something isn't covered in ash, they make a big deal about it. Um, it's a very say, dark world. The reason that it happened is because when before Alindi, the hero of ages in the long time past, went on his adventure, the mists were, were, were like covering the world. It was a big problem. They called it the deepness, so people had to figure out it was it was all kind of cloaked in mystery. But when he betrayed by by uh, what's his name, uh, Rashek, Rashek is a terrorist and betrays him and becomes Lord Ruler. He tries to fix the world by literally moving it closer in its orbit to the sun. Which then causes what happened. Everything is fucking hot. So he's like, oh shit, fuck. Ah, uh, volcanoes. I'll make ash to cover everything. Yep. That'll keep out the, the heat. And it works. But oh fuck, now the plants will, will all die. I'll make them brown. At least resistant to ash. Uh, but now there's too much ash. I gotta make the fucking bacteria to, to, uh, to eat it. I gotta modify every human being to live in ash. It's such a great scene because you realize that Rashek was so fucked. He was in over his head so bad. And everything that happened, all the Lord Ruler shit, all the, the society he set up, were all ways to mitigate his mistakes. And it's so yep. good. I love it. He wasn't an evil fucker. He was just, he just made a mistake and had to like try and a, make up for it. Kind of a doofus, you know, who just had to fix all of his doofus mistakes. Yeah. And then when, Vi well, we'll talk about it in a second. But Yeah. Um, go ahead. I was going to say, one thing I love about this book is the three magic systems are related to the two gods. We haven't talked about preservation at all. Preservation is <laughs> another god who, we it's a whole thing. But I love is that the three magic systems represent the gods in a weird way because preservation is represents um, Ferrochemy. Because, no, sorry, not, not Ferrochemy. Preservation uh, represents, um, what do you call it? Wait, am I fucked up here? Am I wrong? Because ruin is hemallergy, and then preservation is, I guess, allomancy. But I'm trying to remember how that works. Oh, because when when you when you burn the allomantic metals, they release their power, right? And it's you you use it up and get a bigger effect out of what you would have had out of this metal. And then when you have ruin, hemallergy takes away a power from somebody, but you lose something in the process. Even in a situation where some of the Inquisitors were driven straight into them, they still lose a little bit of power in the process. And then ferrochemy is balance. It is the two things together because you don't ever lose or gain anything in, in ferrochemy. You store it up and then you use it later. You can't ever get anything extra out of it. And I just love how those three things are tied together so perfectly in this system. Yep. Um, and yeah, and so going over a couple of the other, um, favorite scenes from this one. So in the very first book, when Kelsier is getting these criminals together to make the heist, because once again, they don't believe he's going to take the final empire. The one thing he does promise them is, Hey, we're going to get the Lord Ruler's ATM stash and we're going to be rich forever. And then lo and behold, once they do it, they can't find the stash. And even throughout the second book, they're looking for the stash and still don't find it. In the third book, it, you realize that it's actually in the um, the home world of the Chandra because it's actually connected to the pits of Hathsin. They never actually had to move the ATM anywhere. It was just went from the pits right there. And 
finding when when you see the moment when he opens it up and sees just a world of ATM down there was beautiful. We should mention that Ruin can't see through metal. Metal blocks out Ruin's ability to see. And also, ATM is is literally uh, Ruin's body. The mists are Preservation's body, and the, the ATM is Ruin's body. And yep. they've been concentrating it all in the, in the Chondra homelands for a specific reason, which is to deny it to Ruin, because it's surrounded by metal all up in there. Yep. And, but yeah, so I'll just say that we, sh- we can't even really get into all this, really, but Ruin and Preservation are not just abstract beings. They were, they were people. And yep. at one point, we see Preservation die, and a, a corpse falls to the ground out of the mists, out of yeah. nowhere. And Ellen and no one is sees it. 30 seconds away from seeing it. Yeah. And no one ever knows this. And, and later on, we'll talk about it, but basically when Vin... Okay, so I love the Marsh chapters. Because Marsh, this entire time, is a passenger inside his own body. He has no control yeah. over himself. But he's sitting there in the back of his own brain. and Saying, he's kill yourself. <laughs> kill <Yep>. yourself. <laughs> he's like, as soon as this ruined motherfucker gets distracted for a second, I'm going to reach up here and pull the spike out of my back and kill myself and deny my power to him. But Seth, when Ruin is sitting on top of a Vin, killing her, and exulting in victory it loses control for a second and what does marsh do marsh just goes in just and goes does right what in. um he fucking he he um you have to cover for me here I, Seth, I, he blanking. pulls the earring out of vin's ear oh yeah and then the mist go in and yeah the preservation finally gets its chance to to uh fight back which is a great scene where Vin now has the power of, like, everything. And she kills all the Inquisitors except for Marsh. And in one incredible moment, she destroys the Lord Ruler's fortress in a single push. Yeah, because the cool thing about uh, Lord Ruler's castle is it's called Credit Shaw, which is just an insane name for a place. Yeah. And it just looks wild compared to everything else. It has all these crazy spires that have their own spires. There's underground portions. There's all this stuff. And you talk it's like made of like iron, like solid fucking metal. Mm-hmm. And then she just fucking blows that bitch out. Yep. And then she disafucking pierce. Yep. Like poofs. And this is when you when when then now has the power of preservation. She's a god, basically. But what she learns is that she is matched in every single way by Ruin. So anytime she tries to save anybody, Ruin can destroy. And so any any movement one does is countered by the other. And soon enough, though, because Preservation's power has been expended so much, Ruin will be stronger than her once he gains his body back. And that leads us to the end game in the Chondra homelands. We didn't even talk about this really, except for a brief moment in the, in the second book synopsis, but the mist of been killing people, but also making them sick. And they learn at the last moment that it's been turning people that are sick into into Alamancers. Yes, or no, it's been revealing them because the thing about becoming Alamancers, well, yeah. you have to you have to snap. It basically, means you have to be in a position where your life is being threatened, and then you'll get you'll reveal your powers. We found out that noble people noble people actually beat the shit out of their children <laughs> despite how they snap, and then we find out that sixteen percent of people consistently. 
um, who have been attacked by the mists have been pushed to a point where they snap and you find out they are all Alamancers. And yep. some of them become Alamancers we didn't know of who can only burn Atium, yep. which is something that you would never find out otherwise. Yeah, because it's such a rare metal. And the Chondra, by the way, I love the part where the Chondra, the revolution is about to happen, and then the third generation overthrows, the th- or sorry, the, th- the second generation overthrows the first, and it's a weird thing where like, the first generation is like, yeah, okay, well, it's time to kill ourselves and, and, and you know, save the world. And the seconds are like, uh, no, we're going to lock you up and not yep. do that. Because they made, love- a, they made a rule. They made a pact that when the day came, they would all pull their, because they had the two pins, they would pull them out and they'd be fucking dead forever. Yep. And uh, most of them do it. <laughs> but Actually, some of them don't. Not dead forever, but yeah, re- reduced well, back into their animal yeah, form. technically. But... And then we get there, and 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 there's a great moment where Tens you don't even see it happen, but they, they, they walk in and they have done it. Tens to convince everybody to pull their spikes out, except for a certain number who get who then has to be detained. Yeah. Um, and then this is the brilliant moment, Seth. Again, Sanderson tying it all up, baby, tying everything up. All that ATM stored in the Condra homelands is then fed to these soldiers who can burn ATM to fight these this last giant army of Coloss, becoming invincible, you know, warriors who can't be touched, and destroying the rest of Ruin's body in the process. Such a just crazy good moment. Yep. Yep. It was so cool. And then like we mentioned, uh Ellen is killed. Uh, he fights Marsh and, uh, and uh, with being controlled by Ruin, and Ruin kills Ellen, and then Vin just loses her fucking mind and throws herself into Ruin and kills both of them in the process. And then a little red-haired body falls out of the sky next to Vin, who also falls out of the sky. And this is when say, oh, by the way, should you say it? That Vin tried to, to fix the world by moving it closer to the sun, just like R- Rorschach did. Yep. And so everything's going to burn pretty soon. She saves the world, or she saves her friends by turning it to the dark side of the planet for a minute to try and help them. And Sazed runs out there, and he finds their bodies, and he finds the power of ruin and preservation. And he takes them both. And like you said, he uses his... It's so great, Seth. You talk about the knowledge of the religions. He uses this old religion's uh, star charts to figure out exactly where the world should be to fix the problems with the climate. And he puts it there. And it's such a great moment of, of payoff. Yeah. There was one uh, one religion that, that kept track of uh, anatomy of humans, and he uses that to fix everyone's bodies back to the pre-ash breathing stage. He, he fixes the plants, makes them green again, according to one religion he had. He shows it, uh, yep. all these plants that cataloged. It's such a, it's, like you said, Seth, it's such a great moment of tying it all back up. Yeah. It's it's beautiful. I I was really... I got completely sold on every part of it. And yeah, I finished reading Hero of Ages, and you know what I did, Seth? What? I went and I bought all of the Stormlight Archive books, sight unseen. I was wow. like, I'm gonna read them. Fuck it, four books. It's commitment right now. It was Long that good. Books. But yeah, they're they're good. I'm we're currently reading those, and they're great. Um, but yeah, I agree. Um, I wanted to tie up some of our favorite scenes we hadn't talked about just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start. Um. So there's this character named Alrianne, who is Set's daughter, um, and she is she has a little romantic thing going on with Breeze. And even though Breeze is a soother and you know kind of like a a cool guy, he doesn't like to get into the romance stuff that often. Even though he does have feelings for Alrianne, and the best part is, 
they because you know there's like there's regions in this place there's northern southern southern all that stuff um and she's from the south which obviously i know isn't the american south but i gave all rianne a southern accent in my head oh, yeah. and it works so well mm-hmm. because she, the thing is she she kind of comes she's almost like cliss in a way where at first you're like oh she's kind of like Oh, bubbly, but not that smart. But you turn out, Alria is actually maybe the smartest character in the whole series. She she always knows what's going on. And there's just a great scene where when Ellen and Van have been told to escape the city in Well of Ascension, um, she goes with them. And then as soon as she's out of sight, she just runs right back to get to her dad to try to convince him to help out with the, the battle. Yeah. <laughs> because she wanted to save Breeze. And it was yep. hilarious. It's so good, dude. Uh... I liked in the third book when Yeoman and Ellen. Yeoman is the guy who we first found as an, as an Altium burner. When Yeoman and Ellen, Ellen is trying to distract Yeoman for a minute, and he has a nerd rap battle basically with this guy, yeah. where the two of them start quoting books at one another, and it is one of the funniest scenes. And Ellen is like, "Now you got to come in here regurg- regurgitating Gordon Wood at me." <laughs> <laughs> and like, honestly, felt straight out of Goodwill Hunting. They just go back and forth. It's, it was like an internet battle in real life. <laughs> and it's so good because Ellen is like, he's into it. Like He's like, oh, this is fun. This reminds me of when I was a carefree guy reading books and debating with my friends. But it's like, Yeoman is like deadly serious and realizes that, oh shit, this guy is just distracting me. It's such a great moment. I love it. it, it it's good. Yep. And then also the thing the thing we t- about the Coloss is when we first meet them, you know, um... We know that they can go to this thing called a blood rage and they can just start fucking killing people. But also they can be very docile. And mm-hmm. when, when they're approached, you, you're like, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, we're human. And at first you're like, well, no, they're not. They're big blue creatures. Turns out a little more true than you expect. Mm-hmm. And we find out that a character named Jace Lacall, who was one of Ellen's buddies in the first book, is actually has an army of Coloss in the second book. Um, they end up actually um, fighting um, in Luthadel. And the entire time, they're just like, how did Jace Lacall, of all people, get control of a Coloss army? And Ellen goes in, and he finds out that they all have, like, the Coloss all have these, like, uh, like pouches along their, like, weapons and their shoulders and stuff. And whenever one, a, a Coloss kills another Coloss, they take his pouch. So eventually, Ellen looks in one of the pouches and finds out that Jace is just paying them with fake money. Yeah. <laughs> and because they want to be humans, or they want to convince themselves they're human, they take payment to yep. be docile and it's hilarious i don't know it's so funny how differently we, we pronounce characters names because you said jace i call him yeah. jostas jostas mm-hmm. jostas lacall jace is pretty good though i like that so it's, it's, yeah, it's, I a, it's a, a, a cool because the thing is he's not a cool guy and no. jace sounds like a cool guy name yeah i also love how some of them ellen's friends in the first book become like Portly losers in the, third, yeah. the second, third book. Like, isn't Jace, is Jace or Joss is going bald and like, like he's getting yeah. fat and what whatnot? Um, also, we haven't mentioned this character very much, but Ham, who is a, a pewter, Ham, a, a thug, he's a, thug. Yes, he's like a uh, he fancies himself a philosopher, and he loved to torment Breeze uh, throughout the books with philosophical questions, and Breeze hated him because he doesn't want to think about that kind of stuff. But there's a great moment with Ash Witherset, who we mentioned recently or a while back, who is who is a great character all on his own. He's a very fun, punchy guy. When he yeah. shows up, he always laughs up a scene. He can't walk. He's disabled. His legs don't work. And 
towards the end of Hero of Ages, um, it's Ham and Set are left in charge of the army while while Ellen goes into the uh, into the city they're besieging to try and help Vin. And they're like, "How is he going to get around?" And they're just like, "Oh yeah, I guess Ham will have to carry him." And Ham looks at Set, and there's this great moment where he just says to Set. I have some philosophical questions, I think, for you to be very uh, intriguing. And Seth just, like, looks at him like, oh, fuck. And it made yeah. me laugh. The first three books are not, I would say, humorous a lot of the time. But that joke really fucking got me. I laughed so hard at that. Yeah. I like that. I just love the idea, because it was such a long payoff for this, this one little joke with Ham that was, uh, that was great. Yeah. Ham, and there's a really good dynamic between Ham and Breeze. They yep. have so many back and forth. Ham always wants to ask these philosophical questions, and Breeze is like, I don't have time for you. But he still, like, secretly loves Ham and, like, will we'll engage with him a lot of the time. It's a, it's a really, really cool dynamic. And I should say, we didn't talk about it, but I did love how the book ends, the whole series ends, with Say Zed saving the world and changing it into a, an, an idyllic paradise for everybody and make Spook into a Mistborn. Yeah, uh, because he can do that now because he's God, and they get left all these books of knowledge and whatnot of how to start one another. And he teases, "Hey, there are more medals to discover." Yep. And then guess there's, what? There's four more books now. Well, three or fourth one coming. Yeah. So, Seth, I, I guess talking about real quick, let's let's do our overall thoughts. Yeah. What did you think about the Mistborn trilogy? I thought it was amazing. I really. Um, as much as I've loved um, a lot of fantasy stuff in my life, I've had problems um, committing to like trilogies. And like I said, I had never read very like any book longer than six hundred pages. Um, I was able to read all three of these books within like two weeks, which was like very big for me. Um, I thought it was done. I, I just thought so much of it was done so well. Um, in endings, especially every book had a very good ending. The whole trilogy had a good ending. Um, which, like I said, is worth its weight in ATM, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things Sanderson gets criticized most for, I'd say the thing I see him get criticized most for is his prose, um, because it's not very flowery. It is very straightforward. Um, but it makes for some easy reading. I'll say that. There were there were times when you can really lose yourself um, in a lot of those pages because you're just, just churning right through it. And, yeah. I just, I really, I think that, like, I hadn't, um, hadn't read a series in so long, and I'm, I now I'm reading the Stormlight Archive, which is m- way out of my regular, um, reading pace, so the fact that he was able to do that was amazing, and I, I really, I think Mistborn and maybe my favorite series of books ever. Yeah. How about you? I, I guess I'll say this, that, um, Mistborn... And Brandon Sanderson now has become probably my, my favorite living fantasy author mm-hmm. uh, because of this. Um, I, I would have said until a couple of years ago, Terry Pratchett, uh, unfortunately lost him. Um, but Terry Pratchett's work, I compare to Sanderson in a way, because Sanderson's not trying to be funny, really. There's not, a lot, there's not, there's not many jokes. It's not a very humorous uh, book. But the prose that you're talking about, that he gets criticized for, I think it works to his advantage. It is it is short and punchy, and it gets you to the point of the thing very quickly. They don't waste because I love Neil Stevenson. I love his books, but the man can go on 
for so long about the most minute details, and it will yeah. be fascinating. Don't be wrong. I'll love reading it. But at a certain point, you're like, you're being indulgent, Neil. Move yeah. on. Charlie Kaufman, some of us have work in the morning. Okay. <laughs> But with Sanderson, none of that. He gets you to where you want to go quickly. And and I just love that these books are kind of a, I would say kind of comparatively a breezy read. Uh, to a lot of fantasy, you know, doorstoppers you could be reading, like the Stormlight Archive. They, yeah. they go by a lot quicker. Which are much breezier than most 1,000 page books. That's true. And I just really enjoyed his skill at tying things together. And... I guess the only the only uh, thing I'll say against this series um, is that the characterization of anyone who isn't Vin or Kelsier or Ellen is very sort of one note in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. They get kind of maybe one or two traits they kind of have to lean on. But I'll say this. I'll say Sazed as well. Yeah, okay. Sazed definitely has a lot yeah. more going for him. So, fair point. But I will say that having read... The, the next books in this series, the, the, the jump in Sanderson's ability to, to make every single character deep and enjoyable is insane to me. Like, there yeah. is not a single boring character in those sequel books at all. So look forward and to that. And there's good examples of that in Stormlight Archive. But I think, I think Stormlight gets way more time to breathe. So obviously yeah, 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 he has more time sure. to develop people out. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Sanderson is great. And I think that uh, uh, the haters can be damned. His prose is fine to me. Yeah. Don't care. And like exactly. you said, Seth, his skill at writing action scenes works because he has such good, short, punchy descriptions of things. Yeah. No no one matches him on that that I've, I've read. Um, in fact, There's I mean, cor- I, to their credit, a lot of authors shy around doing full-on action scenes because they realize it's hard to write. There's a great scene in the first book, in The Final Empire, when Kelsier is fighting the Inquisitor... And there's a, a cage on a cart that was being used that gets thrown at Kelsier by the Inquisitor at one point. And Kelsier jumps into the cage using his powers to, to push against all sides of it at once, give himself balance in the middle for a second before launching out. And it's just such a well-written thing that you can I can see it in my head perfectly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think the prose is fine. Yeah. And now we get to the part this is something me and you have been talking back and forth about. We even mentioned it on the other podcast because how excited we were. Yeah. Obviously, Miss Moore is going to get adapted someday. Don't know when, don't know how. Movie, television series, animated show, something. Um, but we're going to say it's, if it's a live action thing, how would we cast any, any number of characters that you, you think you have a casting for? We can kind of go back and forth if you want. Well, Seth, I mean, you started us off with the best description, the best casting of all time for, for his whole thing. What was your casting for Kelsey or Seth? So from the very first time I read the prologue, this um, when when Kelsier is talking to the Ska, and he's very charismatic, the first actor I thought of was Alexander Siddig from Star, Stra- Star Trek Deep Space Nine, who I think would just be so good as Kelsier. I don't know what first drove me there, but everything about the character has through it justified my choice. I mean, Seth, that's just perfect. That just really fucking hits a nail right on the head to me. Yeah. Um, and my contribution to your casting was that I would cast as Marsh, his older brother, I would cast Oded Fair from The Mummy, who yeah. 
is the right age range compared to Siddig, and also bigger uh, in, in the same way that Marsh is, and I think it'd be perfect. Those two would, would, would go get right together on screen. Yeah. And so I wasn't able to come up with the casting for every character, but I'll, I'll go through the ones ones I have, and we can kind of both pitch in. My first okay. one is going to be um, Vin, because she's one of the main characters. For Vin, obviously, if this were to get adapted, I feel like this would be something you kind of give to like a newer, like greener actress, like try to give her some, some room to grow. Um... But because Vin has this double life as a, um, you know, a ska and a thief, and then she gets to play this, like, royal, or this, this noble person um, in the court, for some reason I just thought of that Netflix show, Bridgerton. So the main character of that show, um, played by Phoebe Denevore, I feel like I'm saying that right, I just kept picturing her as Vin. Um, so that's kind of who I have in my mind as the casting I sadly have no casting for Vin. I don't know. I understand. It's the hardest one, actors. I'd say. Yeah. Because like you um, said, it needs to be an up-and-coming actor, a green actor, because she's so young in the books. Even if you age her up to 18, 19, I don't know really the actors in that age range that I would that I would yeah. go for. Um, um, how about Sazed? Oh, man. I would love... Um, you know, Seth, actually, I think you had, a, you had a better one than me on this. Why don't, you, why don't you go ahead? Did I? I think you did, remember? You didn't write this down? I didn't write this one down. I, I don't have anything for Sage. Well, I, just, I just came up with one, but it's not the one I, you're talking about. Who is it? I don't, I don't remember, so you remember being good. Uh, I think Lance Reddick. Lance Reddick. As Sazed. I picture Sazed, or, or Sazed, as I say. I'm going to say his name correctly. Yeah. Uh, I, I picture him being... Uh, just because terrorists are so described, uh, it, it, people can identify terrorists on site, and maybe this maybe this is what I shouldn't I shouldn't be, be going here, but I think Sazed should not be white. Um, and so my casting, my, oh, like Lance Reddick, yeah, of course. My casting, inspired by you, Seth, was Amir Khan. Amir Khan, famous Bollywood actor, yep. one of the best. So yeah, he'd be a good say. He could. He's also a guy who I think could pull off a Kelsier if Definitely. Hollywood was brave enough. Um, so yeah, Tendwill, I have an interesting choice for. Oh boy, Michelle Yeoh. Ooh, I think would be a really interesting Tendwill. Mm, I can get um, behind this. Yeah, because I wanted like a not an older actress, but you know somebody who's just you know a little more distinguished um, from from a lot of actresses and just is a presence. And I think. Michelle Yeoh could do that really well. You know who I would go for? Who? I'll go for a, a, a Kate Blanchett. That's a good one. Older, yeah. austere kind of woman. Yeah. You I was like, had I, an incredible... Oh, go ahead. I was like, when I first read this book, and I was picturing Kelsier in my head, it was about three or four years ago, I went with Idris Elba. Out of, mm-hmm. of cast Idris Elba as, as uh, Kelsier. But now that we're a little bit further on, I would instead cast Sterling K. Brown as Kelsier, Kelsier and then Idris Elba as Marsh. As Marsh. And that would just be great. Be but you came up with the best casting for Cliss. Of all characters who like you wouldn't think of that much, you came up with Cliss pretty well. Easy, no problem. Straight from the hip. Beanie Feldstein, Beanie Feldstein. would make an incredible Cliss. I completely agree. Um, I also, while we were recording, came up with the best pick for Breeze. Oh. I think I finally cracked Breeze. Because for a while mm-hmm. I was like Ben Schwartz. Which would yeah. work if you were to change the character and not be as portly as he's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But I found out one better than Ben Schwartz. Move out of the way. Matt Barry. 
Ooh, from damn. the icy crown and what we do in the shadows. That's perfect. He is Breeze. He already is. He wouldn't have to act. Nothing to change. Exactly. Matt Berry, just be yourself. Yep. So that's who I've got now. Well, didn't you, um, goddamn, now you've made me lose train of thought. Oh, your Dachshund, I thought was an incredible choice. Who did I have for Dachshund? I've already forgotten. I didn't write all this stuff down. You you wanted to cast Joe Latrulio. Oh, Joe Latrulio. Yeah, because thing about, I was going to do a thing about Dachshund earlier. Thing all about Dachshund is he's like, he's that guy who Kelsey comes in and he's like, yeah, I just killed these six people. And then Dachshund's like, we have a budget, Kelsey, or we have a plan. You can't just deviate. And then a week later, Kelsey is like, I went and destroyed all the ATM in the pits of Hathson. And then he just throws his papers up in the air. And he's yeah. like, God damn it. And I can just see Joe Latrulio being put upon in that way so well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good one. Um, and we have a bit give... of a... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I said, we have a bit of a disagreement over who should play Ham. Oh, yeah. Because my ham is Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman. Uh, Ron Swanson. I mean, I see it. It it works. But I just don't. I just, I picture ham as being like almost seven feet tall and just jacked. Because for me, well, first of all, there's no one like that in real life. So um, for me, the person who plays um, ham has to be able to deliver that line you were talking about to set. Yeah. And I just, I can see Nick Offerman saying it. Let me offer you alternative castings that I think you could be into. That fits with my vision of the character Ham. Terry Crews. Terry Crews. He could work. Terry Crews. I actually saw a fan casting of him as Says on the internet. That would be a choice. (laughs) That would be interesting. Um, it would definitely yeah. do. It would deflate the scene where he hulks out a lot because he's already fucking jacked. Yeah. So. No, but think about this: Terry Crews six times bigger. <laughs> be crazy. Yeah. Fair, yeah. Terry Crews is a good, a good middle ground. I'd say he's he's yeah. he's big. He's he is funny. I can see him delivering the comedy lines, mm-hmm. and he's likable as hell. So I think that's a good one. He's got the comedy chops for it. So because yeah. Ham Cam is kind of a light, a light, a lighter character. He gets to have more fun. Because uh, he's a very uh, he's a breezy personality. Yeah. Well, well Breeze has a breezy breeze. personality. Yeah. Um. But Seth, I was thinking because the, the, the horror of the cast really are Vin and Ellen. Because like I said, young actors, I don't know much about them. Yeah. The Lord Ruler, however, I thought we have a great chance to put Tom Hiddleston in here in a dual in a dual casting though. It's a it has a counterpart, right? And I think we should put. Um, Oh fuck, Seth. I'm gonna edit this out. <sighs> Werner Herzog. Ah, to play the older version. And that's say when she breaks into his in his sanctum and he's there in his old form. Tom Hiddleston plays the young Lord Ruler for the like two times we see him, and then Werner Herzog for that one. And it's funny because Tom Hiddleston is my star power pick for um, Kelsier as well. Oh, I actually do think that if you if they if they were like we want to sell Mistborn off somebody popular, you could put um, Tom Hiddleston as Kelsier to be the because he's he he can do it. He's got the charisma. He's got all that stuff. But he, yeah, but you're right. He could do Young Lord Ruler as well. I don't think he's quite old enough yet for it, but he'll get there one day. 
I mean, he's older than you think he is. Well, he's so. like 35. Yeah. That's good. That's a good Kelsey age. Kelsey was like 40. Oh, yeah. So, so different. No one's ever pulled that off before. I'm just saying, like, I, I picture him having a little more seasoning on him than, than Tom Hilton currently has. But I think maybe, maybe Tom mm-hmm. Hilton is being played as a, as a baby face. Maybe, maybe he, could, he could pull off an older uh, look, That's true. possibly. Can you grow a beard? Does Kelsey have a beard? I can't remember. I don't think so. I don't think Kelsey has a beard. No. So. Dachshund has a beard, though, right? Yeah. Joe so Latrulio with beard. Yeah. There Let's we go. It. Um, as for other people, uh, clubs. Who did you have picked for clubs? I don't have anybody picked. I don't, I don't have a good mental image of clubs at all. That's my problem. Let me see what the... Let me see, pull some fan art real quick, see if I can just think of something. <laughs> think of somebody. Oh, interesting. People have a lot of different takes on this guy. Some of them have him just being a little more old and distinguished, kind of. But here's the thing. And this is a crutch for Brandon Sanderson that I found. Mm-hmm. Anytime... Brenda Sanderson wants to describe somebody who's old and grizzled. He says their face is like a leather bag. <laughs> he says that so many, across different books. He has yeah. said that. That okay, that's actually something I want to bring up real quick. Is some some of um, Sanderson's ticks. One is the leather bag. Two is the word wanly. W a or wanly. Wanly, yeah. I. Have never seen somebody use. He uses that book and uh, that word five times in each book. I would say. Yeah. It is weird how attached to that word he is. Seth, you know who I cast as clubs? Who? David Bradley. Ah. Argus okay. Filch from Harry Potter. He was yeah. that noble on Game of Thrones that did the Red Wedding. Yeah. He he uh, he's probably a little, a little bit too old for clubs. But just I picture him be having that that face of a guy who's just like ah get off my lawn. Exactly. I don't think people would care because this guy this guy's a legend for yeah for the, these fantasy um, projects. My other choice though, a younger choice, crazily for for clubs, would be Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi, he's good. He could do a good scowl, I think. Yeah, Peter Capaldi. Oh God, if he was a little bit younger, he actually wouldn't be a bad sazed. Yeah. I don't think, sure. but yeah, I do. I do think clubs would would be a good fit for him. Okay. Spook, I really um, can't cast either. Don't know much about Spook. Yeah, Spook probably be some kind of newer actor as well. Be hard. Um, I think Zane's the same way. Although yeah. Zane, Zane, I would give. You know what? Actually, fuck it. I would give Zane to Timothy Chalamet. Let let him be Zane. Yeah, because to me, Timothy Chalamet is Ellen. Ellen is literally the the Timothy Chalamet from Lady Bird, but actually smart. That's yeah. what Ellen is. Wow. But the problem is, in books two and three, Ellen has to have a beard. And I'm sorry, as much as I love Tommy Chalamet, he cannot have a beard. Mm. So, so, uh, so Zane is a perfect compromise because he. So yeah, he, Zane, Zane's fine. You know, you know who who is Ellen in my mind. It's Ooh. it's Bo Burnham from back in the uh, the Vine days, the yeah. one where he's like, "Is anything better than pussy?" A really good book. That's yep. that's Ellen. That's that's Ellen to me. But yeah, like imagine if Ellen reading um, history people of the United States, Howard Zinn <laughs> on the hood of a car, except he actually gets it. There that's, you go. That's who he is. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. But and yeah. I was thinking for just this 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 casting came to me earlier. For Yeoman, 
I would pick um, Simon Pegg to be Yeoman. Oh, that's an interesting one. Because he's older, he's older than Ellen, right? He's he's yeah. he's like in his forties or fifties when the books happen, and he just has this effect about him that seems like he's got a dry humor that I think that I think that uh, Peg could pull off. Yeah, the guy who played I don't know the actor's name. I'm sure he's like kind of popular. Let's see if I can figure it out quick. But the guy who played um, Barristan Selmy in Game of Thrones Ooh. could be set. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a very good one, Seth. Um, Damn, the, name you're... Of the, the actor is Ian McElhenney. Oh. Kind of like Rob McElhenney. Spelled differently. That's interesting. But yeah, I think that guy could pull off a good set. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I can see that for sure. But yeah. I think that's about it. For all, all the stuff I have a certain casting for, those are all my all, all the things I have. Um, yeah. My master stroke is still Alexander Siddig as Kelsier, and now Matt Berry is Breeze. Those are kind of my two. I my should two say, by the must. way, we are talking about all this, and Brandon Sanderson is in the process right now of writing a screenplay for Mistborn. Yep. Because uh, he wants it to be a, a movie very badly. But I'm telling you, Brandon, Mr. Sanderson, if you listen to this podcast, make it a TV show, my man. It cannot be done justice in a movie. It's just, yeah. you can't do the whole thing justice. Do, do a TV show. There's no way. Yeah, I agree. I think TV is better for books, but... TV is so seems, good these days! He seems pretty set on Mistborn being a movie. I feel I mean, obviously, if they ever make Stormlight, he'll have to do a TV series. Mm-hmm. But he seems pretty adamant that Mistborn will be a movie, which... If, he, if the script's good enough, I guess you can kind of condense. But I, I just feel like making the other two into one movie each is going to be hard. I guess you could do the thing where you split them up, but... Because I feel like if you're going to do that, Well of Ascension would be the one that I think would most likely be two parts. Yeah. And then, I mean, probably Hero Chase the Well. I don't know. It'll be hard to do, but more power to them. Do a TV show, my man. Just, it'll yeah. be so much easier, and TV is good. You can do good TV these days. TV is great. The special you effects seen Better TV, Call Saul? It's great. That's a TV show. That exactly. Is good. <laughs> it's great. It's not quite like a Mistborn, but it's it's what good. we do in the shadows. Another example of a great show. True, still not like Mistborn, but pretty good. Well, there aren't any shows like Mistborn. What do you mean? I mean, the big example would probably be Game of Thrones, right? I guess that's kind of the that's the uh, the smooth brain take. Is that Game of Thrones? Really? Is, yeah, because Game of Thrones and Mistborn are truly nothing alike. No, no, I'm saying in terms of production quality that we can put on screen. Well, sure. To make it look good, you know, because that was always a problem with TV for so long as it didn't look as good as movies. Yeah. It wasn't as mature of, a, of an art form. But yes, do a TV show, I'd watch it in a heartbeat. Yep. Also do a video game. So, listen, we have a great idea for a Mistborn video game. We really Hit us do. up. The Mistborn Battle Royale game. We're not going to give the details out here because we truly mm-hmm. might give up a billion dollar company. Yeah. And that we would donate all the money elsewhere. But yeah. we could truly build something amazing if we you could. give us the right resources. Please. And people who know how to make video games. There's the two <laughs> things we need. Send us a couple engineers and a, and a couple hundred thousand dollars, and we'll get you yeah. something turned out. <laughs> Millions of dollars. Million dollars yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Um, All right. Well, Seth, this has been fun. And yeah. are you willing to commit to doing this for uh, for The Way of Kings and for Words of Radiance? Yeah. For Stormlight, we got to do one per book. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I'm completely down. I'm, Hell yes. I'm, I'm living in Roshar right now. So Nice, dude. 
All right. Cool. Well, uh, folks, thanks for listening. And if you have not read the, the Mistborn books, this is you learned a lot from our spoilers, and you should read them anyways. Yeah, just read them. And then, if, hey, if you're confident enough, just read all the sequels. We didn't, we didn't do um, anything about those yet. So, And if you have read the books, uh, talk to us about them. Send us a fucking tweet or whatever yeah. and let us know what you think. Tweet. Uh, podcast I'm, I'm, comment. There you go. Comment on the fucking podcast. We'll, we'll say something to you. Uh, well, I am uh, Smith. You find me on Twitter uh, at MCSurf. I'm Seth. You find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, and Letterboxd um, at Part Time Pretzel. And that is it, because there's no, there's no theme song on this yep. one. There's no, there's no theme song. Nothing. There's no outro, nothing. Nope, so, we're good. Bye. So, so yeah. <laughs>